Podkiss 173, Wicked Lester Roundtable. Right, Julian? Round two. I know Gary's excited. Woo-hoo! All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best. You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Welcome back to your podcast. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today. And as usual, I'm joined by Gary Schaller. I'm so glad to be here. Wicked Lester time. Yes. And the lovely, talented Julian Gill, author of many great books you should own. He gave it away. That's right. Thanks for having me back. From the mighty Kiss FAQ podcast. So welcome here once again. We had an incredible amount of feedback on our Wicked Lester Part 1 episode. And I'd like to send a special shout out to Mr. Chris Karam for suggesting this episode oh so long ago and for help behind the scenes. And I would also like to do a shout out to the guy who keeps things running. He is our version of Scotty, right, Gary? He, he keeps the, the good ship podcast flying. We wouldn't be here without him. That's right. Thank you, Roy Myers, for your technical work and keeping this site up and running and allowing us to publish the shows. Seriously, I uh, hesitate in calling you genius because then people want you to work for free for them. So, But anyway, thank you, Roy, for all the work that you do on behalf of Podkist. And on this episode of Podkist, we are discussing Wicked Lester Side 1. That's right, we're calling it Wicked Lester Side 1. So you're going to get a Wicked Lester three-parter out of this. Pretty cool, huh? We are doing the roundtable for Wicked Lester. This album was produced by Ron Johnson, recorded at Electric Lady Studios between November 1971 and August 1972. The band used any studio time that was available. And the track order will vary, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah, depending on which which of the many versions you... uh... we're going to be talking about it's going to be a different album practically every time that's because there's no actual album right (laughs) yeah i mean that's really is kind of true or or if there is we we have no way of knowing what the intention was versus what the finished product might have been or whatever now i know that you guys have discussed the bootlegs that you originally got in the 80s and i think that that version seemed to be set up to appeal to kiss fans would you agree because it seemed to be kiss heavy at the beginning, like songs like uh, Love Her All I Can, those were towards the front, right? Yeah, I'm trying to remember which track listing that was. I've got a I've got a spreadsheet open in front of me that has eight versions of the track order, and I'm like, oh, is that the one that starts with Sweet Ophelia? Was that the one that starts with Simple Type? Or the one that goes straight into Love Her All I Can? Because there's three of those. The one I'm thinking is uh, the first one that I had, and I think it may be true for you as well. Julian is uh, sweet Ophelia, keep me waiting, love her all I can. Hey, that's three, and uh, that's three we can all agree on. Simple type, she, too many Mondays, in the darkness, Molly, and sh- we want to shout it out loud. Mm-hmm. So, how many versions are there of this, Julian? Um, to date, I've tracked eight different versions, or at least eight um, kind of real boxes with that's the track order that was written on the outside of them so wow yeah it it basically starts with i think the earliest one i have is dated august the 17th 1972 and it's they didn't even finish writing in all the song titles on that one so i think it only had uh let's do a quick count here eight songs listed then you've got uh an october 72 real um a demo reel that was given to Bill Coin, which has a completely different, I mean, keep me waiting going into Molly. I mean, yeah, it's a one-two punch for you. And then, of course, the one Gary uh, has detailed, which I think is closest to the, the Columbia reel. So there's a whole bunch of different ones. It, it's nuts. Mm. As if this could get any uh, more confusing, right? <laughs> now, we also know that uh, this album wound up in the hands of its owners columbia right and casablanca had to wind up buying it from them do you know approximately what the price that casablanca paid for this 
Yeah, my understanding is it was a quarter mil that they had to shell out in order to secure this. And if if I'm remembering correctly, and, you know, again, um, anything with Wicked Lester comes with a salt shaker so that you can take a pinch of salt every time you basically open your mouth while talking about them. Um, I seem to remember that the band in Casablanca spit, uh, spit, split that uh, 50-50. And this was 1970-what when that happened? 77. Right on. And, of course, Kiss and Casablanca were in a panic because... Not only would unkiss-like music be coming out with Gene and Paul's names on it, but also pictures of the Wicked Lester band from that photo shoot that we've only seen fuzzy pictures of. And you know that any day now, at some point, those pictures are going to drop and it's going to be a revelation unto itself. Paul Stanley's busily clearing out another storage locker. And if you remember last year, I think it was that he uncovered that previously unseen 1973 photo of the band. I bet he's got outtakes, you know, and he's just waiting to really make his exciting. Just think what it'd be like. You open up your Facebook one day and someone's posted a contact sheet of the rest of the photos from that session. How awesome that would be. Individual member shots, um, you know, crystal clear, 8 by 10 of that. Uh, absolutely fabulous band shot. I mean, that would be exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Me too, yeah. It's amazing because there's so many KISS fans that have never heard this at all. And it's hard to believe that because we're kind of hardcore. We we push to 11 on the geek scale, right? The three of us here. I would say so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there's casual kiss fans out there that when they hear this episode today it may be the first time they've ever heard any of this stuff except for the kiss box set that came out in what 2001 it's hard to believe that was that long ago yeah and don't forget that there will be fans out there who listen to your show who don't even own that box set. So it's someone out there is going to have their first encounter with the glorious wicked Lester through this show. And that's something completely wild to consider. There's always something new for someone. And that's the wonderful thing about being a fan. And, you know, Stan Lee has went on record saying that whenever a Marvel comic would come out, he would like to have something where it says Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider so that, Anybody could pick up any issue and have an idea of what was going on. Every issue is somebody's first issue. So welcome right. to the world of Wicked Lester, podcast listener. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's that. There's always that little text box right above the very first page. You're right. That says who they are and why we care. Yes, exactly. A very important thing. And to your point, we care about Wicked Lester because, you know, as KISS fans, we know or I think most of us know that it truly doesn't take much for something to be considered a Kiss song. You only need one member. Like Beth is a Kiss song, Shandy's a Kiss song, uh, Torpedo Girl is a Kiss song. Or I think most of us know that. Um, and uh, Nothing Can Keep Me From You is a Kiss song. Nothing Can Keep Me From You is a Kiss song. Mm. Um, and, and I wouldn't say that, that uh, Wicked Lester is, is Kiss. But when you consider the fact that it's an album's worth of material with Gene and Paul singing every song, a, a, a few of which writ, or were written by them, um, it's a, love it or hate it, it is uh, something for every Kiss fan to hear. Exactly. Yeah, you know what? It's part of the canon. You can't get to listen to the demo or the first album without then going back and listening to this and understanding everything that they've said in print in the wonderful books that they've published, the official ones, obviously some of the unofficial ones as well. They've talked about how they formed KISS and why they wanted to. Only by listening to this album in its entirety can you really understand why they actually walked away from a record deal and the you know the possible release of an album and decided to do something completely different. It wasn't because they were Monty Python fans. It was because the music will tell you the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because with these Wicked Lester songs and the Wicked Lester story we actually see Gene and Paul learning what not to do to be Kiss as much as what to do, right? Yes. So this is very interesting. And for those who don't know, at this point, the band is Paul Stanley on rhythm guitar and vocals, Gene Simmons on bass and vocals, 
Brooke Ostrander on keyboards, and we have Tony Zarella on drums and percussion, and Ron Lejack on lead guitar. And some of the music that you'll hear today also has Stephen Cornell on it, correct, Julian? Yes, that's right. Um, I think predominantly, well, we'll talk about the actual song in question a a little bit later. But yeah, underneath, it's important to remember that all of this stuff starts off as a rough recording to which they then add. I mean, it's like a witch's cauldron of recording. Oh, we're going to work on this song. Oh, remove that track, mute that track, re-record something over it. So on every single track, Stephen's technically there, even if you can't hear him. Mm Mm-hmm. And as Paul Stanley has went on record and is adamant about, there weren't any Wicked Lester demos, correct? That's what Paul says, and you know what? He was there, so uh, I'm going to have to bow to the star child. Sometimes when I think about Wicked Lester, I wonder how much of a band they were. In this. I mean, I know that they performed a few shows, and we talked about that in the last episode. But the whole like uh, the story of Wicked Lester is like this band going into the studio, kind of making this album piece by piece, being given songs to play in addition to the some you know the ones that they that gene and paul wrote and brought in but when i think of wicked lester i think of studio sessions i never think of a band like jamming and rehearsing and getting together the way bands sometimes do Mm -hmm. we'll see what is a band has changed over time because there was a time where you literally had to play with people in your area, right? right. Like, like-minded yeah. people who wanted something similar. But as things went on in entertainment, you know, they, they found a way to exploit the youth market. You had people putting bands together. There's the case of the Monkees or, it's, you know, where a manager or a, a company said, let's put it together. And there's everything from cattle calls to, hey, we love your band, we can't stand your guitar player and your bassist, so we've got two guys that we've already got on contract, they're the new members of the band, right? Right. So yeah. this kind of stuff happens all the time, and even some of this stuff happened to Wicked Lester. For example, the record company did not want Stephen Cornell involved anymore, and Gene had to fire him, as we talked about in the first episode of this. So. Yeah. But I think that the record company was trying to groom them, you know, the uh, an A&R guy. Uh-huh. uh-huh you know, yeah. Yeah, so, so somebody was trying to develop Wicked Lester into a marketable band. What that would have wound up, who only knows, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, they really seemed keen on getting Ron Lejack to be a, a full member. But I think that, like, in the sense that we have KISS where it really is Gene and Paul steering the ship because they would vote always in lockstep, I think we would have had the same situation here. I think so. Whether it's the Monkees or a band where a record company or management said, hey, we're going to put you guys together, this is now the band, you know, so it it does happen. Slaughter. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Vinnie Vincent featuring Mark Slaughter. Oh, God. Uh, but you see, that's just how things are done. We like to think that uh, a band is like like in the movie Help where they all live together and they all hang out together and they're, yeah. these bands go on big adventures. They only see each other when they need to. <laughs> right. It's just work. To a certain extent. And the Wicked Lester story, I, I mean, we've talked about it. You know, Gene starts recording some demos, meets William Brooke Strander, you know, and then they start doing stuff in Brooke's, you know, uh, living room. And then, oh, let's add a drummer. And so that dude, Joe Davidson, comes into the picture. And then, oh, you know, this is fun. Let's put a band together. It, you know, so it's completely organic how a band generally comes together rather than the case where you're talking about an A&R guy is grooming a talent that he knows of um, putting him together or her with a you know another group of musicians that they think will work and all they're mm-hmm. basically doing is crunching numbers in their head thinking how much this is going to make but it, but bands are not you know it's like the, the difference between a band and a franchise in a way like you could you know everybody I used to work at Burger King and everybody just goes in and, you know, one guy's running the, the fries and the other guy's making the burgers and someone else is on the on the register. And, you know, to think of Wicked Lester is almost like, you know, the, when you hear Gene and Paul talking about it, it almost has that kind of a, a sound uh, or like a, 
what like that's that's almost the impression that you get there isn't a kind of a cohesion you do have that one blurry photograph of the whole band hanging out um but i would like to think that at some point there was some kind of like energy or cohesion uh or that there was some unity to it Uh, look at the pictures that have circulated of them on stage I, i think the you know the one where brooks sitting behind his piano they just look like they there's no unity there so and i think that comes across in the in the music as well mm-hmm. you know what as i'm thinking about it i don't even know that i've seen pictures of them on stage mm. that's interesting well you know when you think about it even by the time this record was being mixed you had a drummer booted out a guitar player booted out who had written some part of the songs then you had uh two other guys getting ready to quit and then you had a guitar player who was brought in who didn't really want to be there. So it basically had Gene and Paul who went and tried to find Peter Chris. So that blurry picture is really symbolic yeah. of that band. It is all a blur. And uh, it really seemed like the two members who cared the most about this band were Gene and Paul. And even they gave up on it. They were the principals from day one, in essence, once those two started working together and found that their differences uh, were useful, whereas their similarities made them stronger. So all you know, the positives and the negatives came together. They had music. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a real fun thing that you can get stuck into, you know, the what ifs. But it's like any sort of art. Sometimes you start a painting. You don't finish it. You chuck it away and you start over with something new. Or in my case, there are dozens of books that I've started that have been shredded and deleted because they just don't work. Wicked Lester is that. Even if you think you've written the last page, it doesn't necessarily mean it gets published or used. It's art. And it has to you know, have a reason, a reason to live. Yeah. <laughs> You know, just imagine a history in which Casablanca, Neil Bogart, Bill O'Coin, and Kiss said, who cares if they have that album? And they would have put that out, and in 1977-78, there would have been a Wicked Lester album released with pictures of Gene and Paul without makeup. Could have been a completely different history. So, there we go. And that's more the problem, I think, is that had the album come out with a picture of them unmasked from before, it would have destroyed the mystique that they were still trying to peddle. So that, I think, is probably a, a more overriding concern to Casablanca in, in order to secure the, the master tapes for this record, and also having competing versions of two songs that had turned up on a Kiss release. That, that would have been dreadful, as would be the worst situation possible. Imagine if Molly was a hit. <laughs> wow. Well, I think without further delay, it's time to get into the album roundtable. So, which which is which is track one for us, guys? Chucka, chucka, chucka. Yeah, yeah let's start there. That's because because for a lot of folks, I think that that may have been uh, the if you, if you were doing the bootleg way, that was the first song you heard was "Sweet Ophelia." So here's the first track on side one, "Sweet Ophelia" from Wicked Lester.
Gary Shaller, your thoughts on Sweetophilia. I absolutely love this song. I loved it the first time I heard it. I'm a huge fan of any 70s sounding music. And uh, right from the get-go, you get that, like, Chickawa guitar. And uh, great leads by, I assume, Ronley Jack. Uh, really strong vocals by Paul. And I, I think a really beautiful chord progression and melody. It's a lovely song, and it has a really dark, it's essentially about a suicide. It's a very dark lyric. I also do um, appreciate what I think is a shout-out to a little bit of New York geography, where he mentions a beach out around Glen Cove. Um, mm. So I'm, I'm a big fan. I like Sweetophilia. Mm-hmm. Julian Gill, your thoughts on Sweetophilia? Well, of course, they didn't write it. They This was uh, one of the songs that was um, brought in probably by Ron Johnson, and it must have been because it was originally released on Barry Mann's 1971 album, Lay It All Out. I love it, though. It, it doesn't matter. I love those chucker guitars at the beginning of the song, which was my introduction to Wicked Lester. So that's that always resonates with me uh, very much so. I'm a little bit disappointed that their version cut out a verse, which, uh, you know, just kind of has the guy coming home, running up the stairs, um, and finding out that Ophelia had died. It, t- it takes out part of the story. But the song, I mean, Paul sings it so well. So... Great version. Love it. The background vocals, these are uh, a sound from the background vocals style that we would hear later on Kiss albums. So it's very familiar in that sense, right? It's Gene and Paul's harmonies. So it's it's really nice. And uh, you mentioned the songwriter, Man and Goffin. And I mentioned my beloved monkeys earlier. Are you guys aware that Barry Mann wrote Shades of Grey and Love is Only Sleeping for the Monkeys? I did not know that, no. Mr. Goffin also wrote songs for the Monkees. Uh, for example, uh, Carol King and Mr. Goffin also wrote Pleasant Valley Sunday. So, oh, lovely, and a ton of other radio hits from the '60s, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. If I'm thinking of the right man or Goffin or what have you, like the girl group stuff. You are, but we will get there when we get there. Seriously, because it comes up again. It's just some excellent songwriting here whether i like this song or not you know it you know you have to kind of think about the where this album would have fit in when it came out right this album would have come out in 72 or 73 right yeah and we've talked a little bit offline i think about um that this was like a little late in the game where it was like behind the curve a bit right yeah, because to me, this album sounds like it might have been of real interest in 1967, but not so much in 1972 or 73. Yeah. And the, the one good thing about this song being current in 1973 or so is that you had a lot of songs that were story songs. Songs about people dying. Songs about the night Chicago died. Uh, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. And this is basically like this kind of a song. It also is similar to Hard Luck Woman in a way. It's This is like in that same wheelhouse, if you will. It's about a sailor and a captain and a woman. Brandy, you're a fine girl. Hard Luck Woman. This is in that same way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. But to me, the song is uh, kind of largely forgettable to me. As funky as it is, it doesn't really work for me as as a great track. And and the vocals seem kind of muddy for as excellent as they are. It's almost a case of too much. Yeah, I, it's so hard for me to step away from the experience of hearing it for the first time. Like the excitement that I mm-hmm. felt just like putting this cassette in the the tape player and saying like i'm just about to hear a whole lot of kiss stuff that i've never heard you know mm-hmm. come on this that was like raiders of the lost ark it was like holy grail material it's like oh golden aura put the tape in the deck and i you're gonna you've heard about it you know what it you know what wicked lester is and you're about to receive so i mean sweet ophelia it, it just feels like one of those songs that was written near the brill building which is basically an assembly line of songwriters just churning out stuff that they're writing so it doesn't really feel like a, a band song it's a songwriter song mm-hmm. do you guys agree or disagree like for example on the vocals had there been a more distinguishable voice 
on the choruses and maybe had the rest of the gang join in on another chorus but you almost it's it's almost hard to make out the words because you're not hearing one voice it, it sounds like guys slightly out of sync you know what i mean right rather than being the backing vocals the, the, they were the this was the lead vocal but it was like eight people <laughs> and yeah. so yeah there is a, there is a kind of a muddiness to it i know what you're saying and i think that that would affect its success on am radio at the time which was the game at that point well this is again why i think it's it's a uh like a, a little bit of a late in the game tune because it's very much like a the whole wicked lester thing has very much of like a um fourth dimension aquarius or yeah. uh psychedelic shack uh temptation sound where you do get that big gang vocal and mm-hmm. it works beautifully well, we have discussed on this show hundreds of times, I'm sure by now, that I've always said that KISS has the look of a heavy metal band with the sound of a hard rock band, but with the soul of a pop band. Yes. And uh, Wicked Lester is straight up pop, and it's mm-hmm. all over the map, though. And where Gene would say that it was like a bunch of guys waiting for the bus, it might be what each guy listened to, who knew, but... <laughs> So our next track is Keep Me Waiting. All right. Track two, Keep Me Waiting. Gil, your thoughts on Keep Me Waiting? Paul Stanley, very, very young, very, very good. Uh, I mean, it's hard to believe that that song never got reused by Kiss, well, apart from in the clubs during the very early days when they needed the material. But it's just an absolutely stunning rocker. I've always enjoyed it. Again, it, I'm going to be very positive about nearly every song on the sound because I do thoroughly enjoy them. I love the different versions, comparing them, whether it is this one that had additional guitar solos on some versions or um, longer intros. It's just, this is a kid. Paul Stanley's a kid writing some pretty well self-edited material. And it's impossible to not be impressed that he was that good, that young, and this song 
was just walked away from. It's stuff like this where, you know, when you hear Gene saying, you know, I, I, when I met Paul Stanley, I had so much of a chip on my shoulder. And then when I, I heard what he was writing and I, it took me down a notch, you know, it's I think it's material like this. that I can imagine being like 18 and meeting a kid like Paul Stanley and he pulls out a song like this and I just go, right? You know, because I write songs, but I don't write songs like that. And that bridge or other section, you know, the it doesn't matter what you do or say. It's just so catchy. Yeah, the shuffle. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's perfect. And it's different from the rest of the song. It fits perfectly. It's a great song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also believe that we hear something in Keep Me Waiting that would later wind up on the 1978 solo album. This is the outro to the song Goodbye. Huh. Here, I'm going to play it for you guys. Da-da-da-da-da, goodbye. Oh, God, you're right. It's all coming back. It starts after the shuffle. Yeah, even well, even the intro to the song is that. You're absolutely... Yeah, 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 you're absolutely... I swear it's somehow... Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I never heard that before. You're absolutely right. Whoa, breaking news alert. <laughs> All Stanley recycles. <laughs> well, there's a there is another spot on this record where that turns up in in Kiss material later too, but we'll get there. Mm -hmm. But that's amazing when you really think about that that it's been right there all along, you know. Oh man, good. Thank you for pointing that out. That never occurred to me. It's great. But it's absolutely, I feel that outro to the song "Goodbye" from the '78 solo album. I like the part where the guitar solo is like singing back to Paul during the second verse. Like Paul would mm -hmm. say a line and then the guitar would like squawk it back at him, you know? Yeah. It seems like this track gets a lot more love as far as, uh, you know, on the production side of things. Like it seems like this one, like where I mentioned that Sweet Ophelia sounded muddy, this one's not. No, it still has that wall of soundy sound, though. I don't mean the Kiss song. I mean the, the production style. Right. But it definitely, you're right. It, it, it's, it's crisper. Well, and it's also... I mean, to be fair, I think they like it, too. They must, because it did make it to the box set, didn't it? Yeah, and I, I think that's a good indication that Paul Stanley still loves that song, even right. if it never did get used. And look at the amount of work that was done on this song between all of the versions um, that we have in collector circles. I mean, from the guitar work, you have the original stuff with rough work by uh, Stephen Cornell, which is, you know, very identifiable as it's something that a lot of uh, guitarists can play. And then you have the professional coming in, Ron Lee Jack, and laying down some absolutely exquisite slide. And then you put at the horns, and the arrangement is just, I think Ron Johnson has to have a part in this song as well. And, you know, that'd be a great question to ask Paul because the arrangement really seems to have gotten tightened up very well. So I wonder if Paul had the maturity at that stage, um, you know, to self-edit to that extent with a, a, you know, a producer of adding in stuff like congas and, you know, lead hair percussion. I mean, it, it's an absolute glorious track. Mm -hmm. I tell you what, and this is going to be unpopular, maybe. A song like She or Love Her All I Can, those are songs that benefit from the kiss treatment, right? Like it's streamlined, take out the flute or whatever, and you get a great, you know, she is just such a kiss classic. I don't, it keep me waiting. If it had been on Paul Stanley's solo album, maybe, or even dare I say unmask. Sure. But I, I, I it, it's such a lush song and I would hate to, I don't know. I think it would lose something in a way. Uh, pared down in that kind of bare bones uh, rock and roll over uh, style. Mm -hmm. No, that just makes sense. Okay. What do you think of Paul's vocal on this? Because, you know, it's so laid back. I mean, it's almost like he's sipping absinthe and just, you know, completely grooving. There are different versions, too. Well, I, it, one, one sounds very laid back. I think the, the, the earlier version, not the earlier that we had, but, but earlier 
that they recorded it, the one that has uh, Steve Cornell on it, is more laid back. And then there's the the later one that has Ron Lee Jack, and he there's a much more of an aggressive vocal attack. I'm losing my mind. Like he's really there's some energy there. So there is a there is a kind of laid back one. But again, it kind of reminds me of something that would fit in really well on his '78 solo album. Very good. I almost would have cut out the shuffle part. Really? Yeah, but the problem with doing that then is then how do you get back to that outro? Because that's really the point of it, right? I mean, if you're Kiss, what you do is you add a, another guitar solo and then another chorus and fade. Right. All right. So we kind of all dig Keep Me yes. Waiting. It's kind of thumbs up across the board. Keep me waiting. track is i'm going with lover all i can what do you say julian yeah why not I'm gonna stay on the paul stanley sorry all right up next lover all i can Julian Gill. Well, hands up. I'm a person who loves this song. I love playing it on guitar. I love attempting to sing it while playing it on guitar. If I hear it, come on, I'll reach for a guitar. And that goes for the Wicked Lester version and the Kiss version. I don't care. I absolutely adore this song. It's power pop perfection from Paul. There's too many P's, so I hope that sentence really popped. <laughs> Gary Schaller. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I've yet to hear a version of the song that I that doesn't blow me away, to be honest with you. And uh, I, I do like the uh, background, the the ah uh, ah uh, ah uh, during the choruses. If I had to pick a Wicked Lester version, because there's a few, I don't prefer the one that's on the box set. The one I like best is is the one on some of the bootlegs that starts with Paul just going, woo, you know, right into it. It doesn't have that um, the guitar chords at the beginning. It just goes right into the song. Hey, I got to have the refrain. I have got to have the refrain. I don't like the hot, the hot start with it. The woo, whatever you want to call it, the whoop, um, the whoop whoop version. Um, got to have those uh, eight measures at the beginning of those chords. Those are just so integral for 
for my opinion. Fair enough. There's so much percussion going on in this song. Mm-hmm. Bongos just exploding out of every little space that they can. <laughs> you really get the picture of a band that had not, you know, they were like fresh in the studio. Just actually, you could almost mention Gene and Paul being so excited, almost like the way they were uh, with working with Bob Ezrin for the first time, like all the possibilities. Kid in a candy store. Right. Yeah. And it's very experimental from the very beginning. That rough version, I mean, that really is kind of the go-to one. It has a great break section in there that uh, just the hi-hat keeps going to, to keep time. And then you get a mini break from the Hammond. Uh, Gene throws down an insanely end-whistle-inspired bass run. Mm-hmm. And then there's a drum roll that leads into the second guitar solo. I mean, it, it, that version, you know, even though it's not as sonically pleasing and as clean as the other versions you know, has that experimentation that, you know, let's, th- what this song really needs is a Hammond organ solo. Get to it, Brooke. <laughs> and of course, some of Open My Eyes by Naz is here, right? Oh, very much so. You've got that guitar bass figure. Yeah, when you hear that song, it, it, it's just, it's, uh, I know we did that on maybe one of the very first podcast episodes, that back-to-back thing, but it, it bears revisiting. Should we do it? Sure. Comparison of the first first few measures of one versus the other. Mm-hmm. Give this a listen. from the NAS board from the Who's Can't Explain. So, <laughs> And it's weird because later the Who will rear their head on another song that we're going to discuss. But yeah, you can hear the Who in this. You can hear NAS in this. So it's really cool. Great song. And to me, this is, out of all the songs that are on Wicked Lester, this is the one that sounds the closest like Kiss. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, next track? I would go with Simple Type. If I'm thinking of the the running order of the first tape I got my hands on. All right. Yeah. Simple type. Mm-hmm. 
Simple Type, written by Gene Simmons, and we're at track four here. So, Gary, your thoughts on Simple Type? I really like it. I, I'm a you know, Gene's my favorite member, as as listeners may know. And listening to this tape for the first time, there was definitely like a "When's Gene going to show up?" kind of thing. And I I like Simple Type a lot because it has that that Gene vocal sound that you don't tend to get on Kiss material, like the mellow Gene. And so you hear it in the Elder, you hear it on his solo record. Walking down the street one day, kind of, you know, you hear the Beatles thing going on. Well, it's that nasally Gene, right? While walking down the street one day, yeah, yeah, looking over one another's shoulder to see. And the other thing I like about it is it's crazy. It's sort of corny, right? It's kind of got some sort corny. Of? Okay, it's corny. It got it has like '60s or '70s socially conscious lyrics of. Um, the streets were full of people in line looking over one another's shoulders to see shoving one another without sympathy. Um, you know, it's about like, can't we all get along? But we would later see this kind of thing in hate is what I am, right? <laughs> yes. I absolutely. mean, this, this is, this is as close as Gene trying to teach the world to sing or joy to the world or something like this is Gene taking on the social problems with the day, right? right? So yes, yeah. So that yeah. Gene would later find that voice and hate and unholy and things like that. And it's weird because the closest that we get to this Gene again is on like the Carnival Souls album, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. With the uh, seduction of the innocent, all that stuff, all yeah. of it. I do love that counterpoint between the mellow Italy Gene and that Led Zeppelin E Paul. I said, hey, you know, like he really comes in hard. Yeah. What do you think of the Matador type part that about oh. 128? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Some cultural misappropriation weird. there. Yeah. And, and unless they're bullfighters, I'm, and, and I'm not aware of it. Uh, but again, the who rears their head. There's a couple times that you, you can hear whoisms going about, you know. Mm hmm. Gene singing so nasally, it's just uh. <laughs> well. And I don't know, should it, Julian? There's a there's a Kiss song that borrows from this later, if you know what I'm talking about. I do indeed. What is my my? Yeah. You know what I like about Simple Type is you know it's it's all about Gene. It's a very Gene song. As you guys have mentioned his vocals and you know some of his lyrics, but listen to the bass in this in this track. This one is all about the bass. It's kind of like the driving instrument throughout. And again, it's just fun to listen to. A, again, a young Gene Simmons has a, a good command of his instrument. He doesn't want you to believe, you know, in Kiss that he's a, a decent bassist. You know, he throws phrases around like hairy gorilla music. But yeah. this one, you know, really shows that he's got a lot of talent the songwriting part, perhaps not so much, but you know, maybe it's just because it seems very dated, you know, all these decades on. And I like that Spanish guitar in the in the middle. That's like really fun. Again, it's different. It's like, what can we do that we haven't done on another song? Well, we've got some wah pedal on that one. We've got some slide on that one. Hey, what about Spanish guitar? <laughs> 
don't yeah it's weird i i uh i also want to talk about what a great rhythm section he and uh tony zarella are because the drumming on this is really fascinating too just some cool choices and accents lovely arrangement all around and you know you have to look at what was going on in the charts right and like there's songs do you remember this song I think it's wonderful now that people are finally getting together. I think it's so groovy now that everybody's yeah. trying to get together. And then you had things like Sly and the Family Stone, you know, everyday right. people, we need to work this out. Uh, a couple things that this has ruined my life for is any time that there is a Friday the 13th in May, I can't help but <laughs> celebrate Friday the 13th in May, right? And don't forget fr- Friday night, August the 14th for all you Funkadelic fans. That's right. That's right. Do you have to keep on fighting this way? You know, you... Can't you find yourself? Yeah, before that day. So the world's going to end, so you better find yourself before that day. You just wouldn't hear that in a Kiss song. Right. Those lyrics, they're right up there with My Uncle is a Raft. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> now, I got to go back to that first bootleg because... There was a neat segue that I remember just loving when I was a, when I was a kid. And I heard that you get the um, at the end of Simple Type, you know, then I met a Simple Type. We started to fight, and on the cassette I had it, it went, you know, I said, "Hey, right into she right there." Did is that the cassette that other folks had? Yeah, that's that segue. Yeah. Yeah, that that was on my first version that I had. If I if I again, if I recall correctly, thirty years on, um, it did segue straight into there, and the version that started with um, she starting straight didn't circulate for a few years uh, right. after until a few years after that. Yeah, so that makes sense, right? Like if you're putting an album together, that that seems like a logical thing to do. Just going to ask the panel, what is a simple type? Uh, a a, a uh, ragamuffin, a scoundrel, a ne'er-do-well, if you will. Someone that's not thinking too much? I think so. Yeah. A person who is quick to anger and violence, if you will. So avoid simple types, especially around the Friday the 13th of May, right? So, that's right, yeah. So there you go. I've heard that they like to start fights, so. (laughs) All right, our next track is... She. She. uh, The Kiss classic, She. Or on my Mexican copy of Kiss Alive, Ella. Ah, there you go. Getting bilingual up in here. Hey. Watch it. Watch (laughs) it. There's only that one time. That's right. Yeah. In college. Yeah. She.
Yeah, she. What a revelation to hear those flutes on a song like she. Mm-hmm. Julian Gill, your thoughts? What a revelation to hear those flutes on a song like she. <laughs> I didn't say it was a good revelation or a bad revelation. I just said it was a revelation. It simply, it simply is a revelation. I mean, how yeah. many Kiss fans uh, did a you know one of those WTF double takes when they they probably hit re- re- rewind on their tape deck and go, wait they put flutes on there what's wrong with those people now, you know what there's also plenty of cowbell on uh, at least the rough version so you know it's a completely different song that don't forget that early version with steve has uh, the original lyrics of she's no good before gene was turned to the dark side and decided that she's so good you know, that, that was a suggestion that was made to him in the studio. And it, it's fun to listen back to that. And I, I mean, come on, flutes. Yeah, Jethro Tull was, I'm sure, all the rage. But again, it just that you let these guys loose in a studio. And it's like, oh, look what's over there. There's a tambourine. There's maracas. There's a conga. Yeah. There's, we're going to use it. And no one to be the adult in the room and tell them no. Do we know who played the flute? Rook. Oh, okay. Talented dude. Very much so. Very oh. talented. That's why he's a teacher. Right. And uh, seriously, you know, you mentioned Jethro Tull, but this was marketable at the time. Uh, that was a very big thing that was happening. That was a thing. People don't realize it, but check out Jethro Tull, folks. I'm not a fan of the added guitar part singing back to the vocal line on the Enchanted Starlight. He goes... You know what I mean? It seems like uh-huh. it's it's counter to what's going on. The keyboard is really good, as is the flute playing. Uh, and they were right on time with the Jethro Tall thing. The guitar solo on here is Ron Lee Jack, right? The, those little spurts that you're talking about, that uh-huh. to me sounds like it's Steve Cornell, but a lot of the, most of the leads are Ron Lee Jack. Please correct uh-huh. me, Julian, if I'm mistaken. Yeah, I, I, be, I believe so. I'm, I'm, I would just rather talk about the trumpet the, and the trombone. I mean, there's a tuba on there as well. I mean, Brooke brought the whole brass section in for this song. So we always talk bom, about bom, bom, bom. Yeah. we always talk about the flute, but we don't get to John Sousa or whatever that American brass dude is. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, my stepson is in the college marching band, right? So they play during football games and stuff when i was listening to this this week i was taking notes and i wrote if she would have been a much bigger song the arrangement is already made for a high school marching band to do this at halftime <laughs> hey who says they didn't in cadillac right right i guess but it would have uh, worked and, and can work. we talk and can we talk for just a moment about the fact that you've got all these backing vocals going wow 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 during the chorus at least in one of the versions yeah, it's weird. And this song goes all the way back to Gene's bullfrog beer days, right? Yeah, th- I mean, Steve actually had a much larger hand in writing this song than is generally known. Again, off the top of my head, I'd have to dig back through some of the interviews I did of them. You know, it, he recalled it being written, I think, at his kitchen table. It's just very, very weird. See, we talked about the listening to uh, listening for influences, right? Like the Who and um, Naz. You get to hear the mountain influence in the songwriting yes. here, like Mississippi Queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, this song he wanted to call it "She Walks by Moonlight," right? Because of the movie Hondo. Yeah, I mean, talk about weird inspiration as well. I mean, he, Gene lyrically talked about this song like being a tribal kind of song uh, about an Indian chief and his daughter. I mean, geez, Gene. Hmm. She walked by moonlight. I am unwilling to watch an entire movie to hear that little snippet, but if anybody feels so intrepid or so inclined, we'll gladly play it on the show. Mm -hmm. Another thumbs up all around on this one, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, thumbs up for sure. Well, we are going to end today's discussion with she. So this is going to close out our Wicked Lester Part 2, Wicked Lester, the album side one discussion. And it is a case of podkistus interruptus. That's right. (laughs) But we will be back very soon with our third episode of Wicked Lester with Wicked Lester Side 2. Sound good, Gary? Works for me. So until we talk next time, happy Halloween and be good to one another. Oh, excellent. 
All right. See you, folks. That was awesome. Good work. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. See you soon. Gene, how was that burger? Pretty good. Well, it's a family show, but it's so good I swallowed. <laughs> Excellent. And I should stop talking because my mouth is full. So I'm going to send it back to you guys in the studio, but get the good stuff while you We can. want to rock nice, and roll and yeah. party every day. <laughs> and that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulik, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, Thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. What the fuck is this show? (laughs) (laughs) Podkiss 173, Wicked Lester Roundtable. Right, Julian? Round two. I know Gary's excited. Woo! Wee! It's Friday, and I've been in meetings for five hours. Oh, God. I, I literally just got out of one. I was I was in one a lot yesterday, but not today. You bragging? Bragging. Well, I'm in a meeting. I have a job. <laughs> I'm gainfully employed. I'm Gary Scheller. I'm better than you. No, you're going to sit down today. Uh, am I sitting down? Am I sitting down right now? No, but you will as soon as we get you serious. Can tell that? How can you actually tell that? Because I can hear your. Sounds like a horse walking on a wooden floor. Oh, I can take my shoes off. I can take my horseshoes off. <laughs> Just sit down. Be a professional. Ugh, I don't even sit down at work. All right, hold on. That's cool and all, but you used to, remember back when you used to have to edit the shows, you used to sit down with headsets on, and then you make me have to try to edit out squeaking floors and you sorting CDs that you don't own and paper clips and whatever nervous fidgeting that you're doing. If you you would do the dishes every now and then. I do the dishes twice a day, goddammit. I am supine. I am lying on my bed. Oh, good.